Welcome to the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Do you like cooking, reading about food, or even just eating? Then this podcast is for you. My co-host Charlotte and I work in the food industry. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, meeting the people who make it all happen, and showing you what's going on. Together, we'll bring you an inside view from the food industry with our unique perspectives from our work behind the scenes in food creation and production. Every week, along with our special guests, we'll cover different foodie topics, from baking to growing your own, home cooking, outdoor cooking, and even booze. Our aim is to take a positive look at what the nation is cooking and eating right now. There's so much adaptation, galvanization, and collaboration across the entire food system at the moment. And we'll be talking to some very special guests about the changes in their world, professional and personal, about remodeling, rethinking, and innovating with so much turned upside down and sharing some unique perspectives from field to fork. We'll also consider what food will look like in the future, in the home and outside. This podcast is sponsored by Moorish Hummus, a tasty treat for when eating in is the new going out. Moorish produces a range of delicious dips, including smoked hummus and now new velvet hummus. Moorish is available in Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Ocado and many other stores. Every week, our lucky listeners will be in with a chance to win some delicious dips in our competition at the end of each show, along with some other exciting gifts. I'm Jules Waddell, founder of Moorish Hummus. Yes, there is a link. And I'm here with my co-host, Charlotte, award-winning cookery, writer, teacher and chef. For more on us, check out lovemoorish.co.uk and charlottepike.co.uk. We'll also keep you updated on what shops are open when and for whom on our website pandemic-pantry.co.uk. So, it's time to pull up a chair at the table, sink into the sofa or relax into bed and get ready for the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Pandemic Pantry podcast. This week we'll be talking about all things home cooking. As we record this episode at the end of May, early June 2020, it looks like bars and restaurants are starting to prepare for some small easing of lockdown and working out ways to safely reopen where possible and economically viable. What this means for home cooking is that there will still be plenty of that going on in our homes. So this week we talked to Corin Barnes, editor of Delicious Magazine, a glorious food magazine which I personally devour every week. We'll also be talking to one of the UK's most influential family food bloggers, Emily Leary, and award-winning food writer, Angela Clutton. Finally, in case this is the first episode you've listened to, we do like to say upfront that we know the audio quality of our content isn't perfect and occasionally contains the odd glitch. This is due to the nature of the pandemic and the fact that we and our guests are recording from home with less than optimal audio acoustics and the occasional Wi-Fi wobble. Finally, we've loved receiving your questions this week about cooking during COVID, and there'll be more on that with Charlotte later. So, on to the show. Hi, Charlotte. How are you? Hi, Jules. I'm fine. Thank you. I'm fine. It's been another week. Same old, really. It seems crazy to say that I have never in my life been in a situation where I (laughs) felt as though the weeks are so similar going one to another. Usually it's a question of every week has been totally different. Everyone I've spoken to this week has really generally said to me they're feeling pretty fed up with it all, to be honest. And it certainly feels as though it 
it's not going to change significantly any even those small changes have been announced it's really interesting talking to sort of people my parents generation relatives you know they generally are saying to me they feel a bit sort of bored a bit trapped for me it's the repetition that's really getting to me and the fact that I just feel as though my freedom has been really curtailed. I'm not used to that. And that's been the most difficult thing for me, that sort of Groundhog Day feeling. And actually, I've spent some time catching up with my friends this week. And a lot of my friends have young children. I'm definitely in the minority by not having children. And I know you've talked about your family before, but you know, a lot of my friends have quite young children and it's been really interesting talking to them about the challenges because a lot of them work, but have two or three children who are preschool age, which is really hard when you have to try and actually appear professional (laughs) and, you know, have director's meetings with really little children who can't understand it. And then, you know, there are concerns with a lot of my friends have got a child who's due to start school in September and it's, you know, worrying about when you send them back, making sure that they're actually ready to go to school. Um, Other friends with children who are at nursery age and wondering when it's going to be appropriate to send them back for the children and in terms of their safety and also what you tell them I hadn't thought about that before but you know some friends and nurseries actually told them and you know little three and four year olds are saying oh can we not go out because of the coronavirus and other children who actually aren't aware of what's going on and what do you do how do you prepare them to go back into a world that's different you know it's so interesting how we're all so affected in different ways by this Yes, that's so true. And actually, you need to be able to communicate information to children about what they need to do and wash their hands and not hug each other. And I actually don't see how that's even slightly possible with little children. But without scaring them at the same time, you don't want to you know, terrify these kids. It's very hard to strike that balance. And actually, you've reminded me, my sister's little girl is one and a half. And one of the things they're finding challenging, so they both work half a week each you know, with the other one taking control of the childcare whilst the other one's working. But it's things like my sister was saying she's been playing with the same toys over and over and over for months. And that's just so boring. And to try and entertain a small child locked down just must be an absolute nightmare. I am grateful that mine are a little bit older. There's a limit as to one's creativity of how to, how to keep everyone entertained. For I think that's it. Time. And the adults are fed up and they're trying to work, but also these little kids must be bored, stupid, and that's not ideal. No. So when I, we spoke last week, mm. you were saying you were going to introduce a day each for your children at the weekend. <laughs> how did that go? And oh. how has your week been in general? <laughs> You've got a good memory. Well, you are reminding me of a conversation I was having with a friend yesterday, what you were saying about Groundhog Day. And I think it's because I would often do the same things every day. So I would wake up and have a cup of coffee or whatever. And that would be my little routine. But it might be in different places. I might wake up in London or, you know, I might I might be somewhere else. It's the speed of the days whizzing past because you're like, oh, Here I am. I sit and have my coffee in the greenhouse now. Here I am having my coffee in the greenhouse every single day. And so to try and break up that monotony for the children, you're right. We had International James Day last Saturday and bless him, he wanted to, so he's 12, 
he wanted to wake up. He can make his own pancakes now. He's learned the recipe. So he made pancakes loaded with Nutella, but um, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> then he wanted to swim in the sea. And then I think he was chatting to his friend on the Xbox later on, all the things that are quite a big treat for him being 12. And then we were able to get a pizza that we couldn't have delivered, but we were able to collect it on a family movie night. That was terribly exciting and really did give him something to look forward to. Obviously, when it got to the end of the day, he said, oh, no, I have nothing to look forward to. We'll have to do another one. So there will be another International James Day. International Anna Day is this Sunday. And she's talking about, she loves going wild swimming in the river, something like that, and maybe a picnic. So we'll we'll see what else she fancies. She did say, she's 15, bless her. She did say, a lot of the day, I might just want to be on my own. (laughs) (laughs) She can't get away from us at the moment. So I think when you say you can do anything you like within the realms of possibility, one of her top things is to get away from all of us. <laughs> it is hard, actually. I mean, I'm used to being home alone. When I'm home, I'm used to being on my own all day. And I'm perfectly fine with that. <laughs> but you do notice, you know, I'm quite independent. I quite like to just get on with what I need to do. I don't need people around me, although I do like it in the evening. But it is just really hard not having the space that you're necessarily used to when I'm I'm very conscious that we are speaking from a position of privilege, really. You know, we do have outdoor space and, you know, a reasonable amount of space around us, but it's so hard, isn't it? I think you're right. I think it's the physical space that you don't have, as in on your own, because you're isolated with somebody else. And and again, it must be even harder to be isolated completely alone. Being isolated, two people in a house, that's quite intense. And for me, four of us in a house, it's the headspace. And we might have talked about this before. And especially we're just at the end of half term week as we're recording this. And so the children haven't been doing any of the lessons and things that would normally take up at least a couple of hours a day when I would have peace to sit and do my work. And a lot of my work is cerebral. It's a lot about thinking, planning, coming up with ideas, finding ways to do things, solving problems. And to not have the headspace to do that, I find particularly challenging. So it will be nice to have some of the the new normality of them doing their homeschooling lessons when this episode comes out. We'll be back to a slightly more normal situation. But let's talk about this week's episode. It's a really exciting one because I think it covers something that absolutely everybody can relate to and that's home cooking. So Charlotte, I obviously follow you on social media. I see you cooking amazing things at home every day. I have to say your partner is incredibly lucky. I wish I was <laughs> how you used to live. As we said, you weren't around his home at much and I don't think he was either. So how are you finding home cooking at the moment? Well, this is really interesting. So I don't do all that much home cooking in normal life because of our routine, as I've mentioned before. So it is really different having to cook a meal every day. And actually, I end up mostly cooking two meals as well, lunch and our evening meal. So I quite like it. I mean, actually, to be honest, I do just love to cook. And I really do like cooking for us every day. And I've been really enjoying that. The thing that feels weird is the shopping and the sort of having to constantly produce food because I'm not in the routine of that. So I've certainly noticed this week going shopping. Oh my goodness. It felt so busy going out. I went shopping yesterday. I don't know what it's like for you, Jules, but it felt 
heaving being out shopping loads of queues to get in I went to M&S I had to queue to get in and then to queue again to get into the food hall which took me about half an hour to even get in I found that the shopping supplies have been quite patchy this week. So I have very much been influenced by what I can buy. And I'm very aware that I'm not normal insofar as I will go around the shops and see what looks good and what's in season and make a decision. But I'm very aware that I have the skills to be and ideas really to be able to cook from what I see in front of me, which I know is actually quite stressful for a lot of people. But the one thing I would just say finally is that what I really enjoy about everyday cooking is trying something different. And one of the ways I'm trying to learn is cooking something different for us every day and wherever possible trying things that I've not made before because I've got the time to do so, which is something I really enjoy. Is that something you do? You mentioned your children are getting involved in cooking new things from books as well. Yes, they are. And it has been such a pleasure to go through the cookery books and pick out recipes and find things that we think we'd like. And they are still cooking and learning to cook, which, you know, is something that they'd always had a little bit of interest in. But now it's it's becoming part of the routine. So they all have particular days of the week. So my son might be the Tuesday chef and my daughter might be the Thursday chef. And that's a new way for us, but it's more reason for them to learn to cook because it's now part of of how we operate as a family. I think I'm learning new skills. I've been watching some online content. I was saying to my husband yesterday, it is different. I love to go to a cookery school near us and learning from somebody in person. And it is different watching somebody talking and the tips and tricks and hints and just the little things that you can pick up when you're not just reading a recipe in a book. And as I've said before, I I learned to make pastry during lockdown from your video, Charlotte, online. And now that's a regular thing in my repertoire to make quiche. And I think finding finding ways of cooking that work for you, so I'm liking videos, certainly is enhancing my, my home cooking repertoire. That's really interesting, Jules, because one of the things that I think is most useful about cooking classes, so obviously I'm not teaching face-to-face cooking classes anymore and I don't think I'm going to be for a little while yet but one thing that you can really really get from a physical cookery class if you like is the taste because what a lot of people struggle with is actually getting the seasoning right and working out how it should taste and getting that right and that is something that's so difficult to do remotely isn't it you can work on the techniques but that's a piece of the puzzle that is missing Yes, seasoning is a thing. And in my house, we have differing views, my husband and I, on levels of seasoning. Oh. So yeah, that's interesting. I quite often don't tell him. I'm wondering if he'll listen to this podcast. I quite often (laughs) sneak up to the pan and add in a little bit of extra seasoning. But yes, it's one of those things. It's quite a personal taste, but obviously you can get it badly wrong and the recipe won't taste at all right if you're not seasoning properly so that is something that I don't know how you get over that with video content very very difficult to tell but I guess we have to take what we can get and if we can only get our content through videos at the moment then that is the way it is but we've had such a, a lovely set of interviews for this episode I'm really excited about the people we've been speaking to the first person we are speaking to is Corin who is the editor of Delicious Magazine. So let's hear what she had to say about all things magazine. Karen Barnes is editor of Delicious Magazine. Karen has been at the helm of Delicious for over a decade and has worked in a range of roles before that, including leading the Good Housekeeping Institute. 
Delicious is one of the UK's leading food magazines, pushing monthly editions filled with seasonal recipes and features created by the in-house team and contributed by leading chefs and writers. Karen Barnes, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. What's the picture for you all at the magazine at the moment and how are you all working to carry on as usual? Well, at the moment, we're all working from home, which is no surprise. And it's initially, it was very challenging just from a technical point of view, because you're, you're trying to work out how to communicate accurately, as everybody has been. Um, but with, with a magazine, you're, you've got so much to talk about all the time. And for us, we redid the contents of an issue very rapidly and my publishers decided that they were going to delay the publication slightly and do a slightly larger issue that was coming out as a double issue for May and June which is on sale at the moment and the reason for that was because suddenly nobody was buying magazines and the shops were being picked clear all the food I'm sure you we all remember that and I think it just magazines are something you buy when you go and browse and have a look and think about what you want to purchase and that was on top of people's agenda and so the supermarkets were having to prioritize their supply of food so quite understandably so for us, we decided to combine an issue and we were therefore reworking all the content very quickly and deciding what should go in. And of course, it was changing daily, as it was for all of us. We all felt that, didn't we? It was just every day there was some new news, something you shouldn't be doing, something that was changing. And things that we wrote very quickly within a week felt out of date. So we had to keep taking things out and redoing the contents over the course of about four weeks altogether. And eventually we, you know, the magazine went to press and I felt so delighted with it because I think in some ways situations like we've been going through are massively challenging and stressful and upsetting. When you're having to deal with a circumstance that's so different from what you're used to, in a creative environment, it also can kickstart your brain in a way. And you have to think in a very different way about how you're going to do things. And I have to say, my team, I hate to use a cliche, blew me away, but they did. Because <laughs> they were just constantly coming up with ideas for what we could do and how we could change things and how we could work around one of the biggest challenges, which was actually not being able to do any photo shoots at all. Wow. You see, that's really interesting. And one thing I was thinking about before speaking to you is a lot, I don't know how many listeners will be aware of this, but you actually changed the way you put the magazine together. I couldn't find out when, but maybe a year or two ago, because what you do is you put the magazine together really quickly before it comes out. So you're not prepping the Christmas edition in July. Am I right? You you actually put it together really quickly before it comes out. I suppose that's really especially helped you to be reactive to what's going on at the moment. That's not quite how it works. What we did do in 2014 was we decided to publish. Traditionally, magazines have come out a month before the date that's on the cover. So a June issue would traditionally have come out at the beginning of May. And in fact, going to subscribers even two weeks before that, which meant when you care about food and seasonality, 
that just makes a nonsense of a food magazine because it meant that if you were putting together a June issue and you wanted to write about strawberries, for example, when the magazine was landing on subscribers' mats, particularly people living in the north of England where there's still maybe frost or a bit of snow on the ground, they were thinking, what a load of nonsense having a strawberry pavlova recipe. So we changed it so that we the magazine reflected the season that was exactly when the magazine was going on sale. But in reality, that didn't change our production process. Because right. it's still it does still take a lot of time to put the magazine together, the same amount of time. And it actually we do, for something like Christmas, and it will be different this year, and I'm not quite sure how, but normally we would be having a big brainstorming meeting, usually at my house actually, round about, not quite now, but probably mid-June or towards the end of June, where we would have lots of ideas. And during that time, we would come up with just a sort of almost like a big blueprint master plan, but not shaped in June or July. And then we would leave it for a little while to kind of sit and see how things were panning out and hear about new products that are coming out in the shops for Christmas, which is always a key thing. And then we would start recipe development in about August and shoots in August and September. And so the magazine will still go to press around mid-October and December issue would go to press mid-November. And so you can see how the timing, it, 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 Christmas actually covers a whole six months of the year ordinarily and what we do leave until the last minute is things like taste tests but also anything to do with gifting and anything slightly news related because that is what I like to be as immediate as it can possibly be but recipe development shoots and food planning has to happen a lot sooner than that because it takes an awful long time to do up to 10, sometimes 12 photo shoots for a Christmas issue. So how is that going to work then if you're now trying to predict a future that is, it's always hard to predict the future, it's just almost (laughs) impossible now. If you're trying to think about, you know, what will the news be close to Christmas? Who knows? That must be a real added layer of challenge and something to, to get your mind working on. It is really difficult and I have to say that the issue that we're working on at the moment which we're just finishing that's the July issue we've got about a week to go we are modifying things constantly and it's really difficult because things like stores opening as we talk now we're just hearing about the fact that shops might open might open next week and garden centers have just opened and other things are about to change and it's quite difficult because we don't know what's happening with restaurants so for example we've got chefs within the issue and they're talking about how the situation has affected them but we're having to guess that their restaurants won't be open when the magazine goes on sale and I'm almost certain that they won't be and I think I'm hoping that readers will forgive us if there's something that is that has changed slightly in between so I suppose at the moment we are working in a much more current way than we would normally do and that's partly because we can't do any photo shoots so looking ahead to Christmas I don't really know, if I'm honest. I don't know how to answer your question because I really do not know. I think we're just going to have to wait and see what happens for another couple of months. And it will mean that our issue will be very 
difference. Whatever we do, it's going to have to be on the hoof, reacting very quickly, working out whether we can go to shops, can go to restaurants, and also gauging the mood, I suppose, of people, because so many people's livelihoods have been affected, haven't they, by the current situation. And that in itself is a challenge. You know, will people want to be spending money at Christmas? Will we be able to gather with the people that we want to gather with? All of those things will affect radically what we do. I imagine that, for instance, looking a bit further ahead, New Year's parties still won't be able to happen. So I think we just need to make sure that we have fantastic recipes that are adaptable for any number of people and then try to react a bit more near to the time we go to press with any new developments. I think it's obviously going to be a quite a pressurised year for you trying to be as current as you possibly can with so many unknowns and food is really important to people. Never more so because never more have we been at home cooking all day every day and even if restaurants do open a little bit it's not going to be like it was and so what you're doing is incredibly important but also particularly challenging to sort of guess without a crystal ball. I'm interested in what you're saying about photography and photo shoots so how are you getting imagery into the magazine then without being able to do any photo shoots that sounds like something you've uh, you've had to grapple with. Well Initially, because we do work quite far ahead, it wasn't so much of a problem because we already had quite a bit done and also our issue sizes have had to be made slightly smaller. So we were actually eking out the sheets that we had done. Also, at this time of year, and this is an insight into how magazines work, we do tend to shoot some things a year ahead. With food being really seasonal... There are certain things that you can't get or they don't look the best if you're buying if you're buying something in strawberries in winter, they don't look right. They don't look like summer strawberries. So sometimes we shoot ahead. And actually there's an example in the issue that's coming out. We've got a whole feature on lavender, which it's got beautiful pictures of lavender fields uh, from a farm in Kent. And we developed recipes using lavender as an ingredient in lavender honey. And that was shot last summer. So that was one real blessing. Another thing is that we have a team that we work with who live together. They're not actually in this country and they've done a few features for us. So they can do a limited amount for us. And also people might not know that we are part of a a bigger brand. So Delicious Magazine was founded in Australia. So the parent magazine is based in Sydney. And we can use a certain amount of recipe content from them, which we then retest using British ingredients to make sure everything works. Because things like flour, protein content, things varies enormously from country to country. So we can do that as well and they can use ours. But that's only a certain amount because it's perpetually summer in Australia at the moment it's actually easy to use their content but in the winter it's much more difficult so I suppose we're juggling all of those things and we also have always done extracts from a certain number of books one or two per month and we'll continue to do that what I'm trying to avoid at all costs but we'll have to do a little bit of is sometimes featuring a favorite recipe from the past 
and maybe I think people are I don't know it'd be interesting to know what you think but I think people are interested in a way to know about the most popular recipes that people are cooking and things that have really triumphed online and that are being searched for and perhaps sometimes it's interesting to see those things in print what do you think? Totally agree. Absolutely. And I think knowing that a recipe has been very particularly enjoyed and has been a real particular success with readers, I personally would be even more drawn to that sort of content. And I think that's a really interesting idea. I've definitely been using my cookery books more because I've never been at home as much. And I was just thinking about it this morning, not related to this call, I was thinking the way I use my recipe books is that I have particular favourites in each book and that's what I use that book for. So I'm not going through the book encyclopedically, trying everything. I have particular favourites and I think that's the way people like to do things. They find something, they love it, it works well, the family will eat it, it's quick, it's easy, it doesn't go wrong. And those mm. are the kind of things that you come back to again and again and that must be popular with, with readers. That's good to know. I think, in a way, this situation has been exciting from a food point of view because I, so many people are cooking more. You can't, eating out has been so difficult, which has been a real challenge for restaurants and the hospitality industry. But it's exciting to think that a lot of people are trying to cook maybe for the first time or other members of the family are cooking for the first time and hopefully doing the endless washing up that seems to be <laughs> piling up. But I agree with you about cookbooks and prints. It's, although social media is very exciting to discover what everyone's doing, I also love the fact that you people are using magazines and cookbooks to discover new recipes and try new things. And I don't know if you've heard of a, a website called Eat Your Books. It's Have so useful. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, that, mm. that's come into its own just lately, I think. And for anyone who doesn't know about it, it's a website where you pay a very small subscription per month, but you can log on your virtual bookshelf every single real books that you own and then you can just if you want to make chicken or paella or you have certain ingredients in your fridge that you want to know how to use them you insert those into the search engine and it tell, brings up all of the recipes in the books that you own so you then think oh I didn't know that Nigel Slater had that I can go and find that recipe and try it and the other thing that they do is index every single mag food magazine. So every issue of Delicious magazine is indexed. And so it also brings up all the magazines that you might have. But it also would remind you that that recipe is readily available online. So you can seek it out online if you don't have a, a print issue. But of course, online recipes are there at your fingertips in another respect for people who aren't so keen on print and love to cook from websites and any online recipe resource it's fantastic that you can have you know thousands of recipes at your fingertips which 20 years ago wouldn't have been the case that's amazing I had not heard of that website and funnily enough this morning I was thinking ahead to tomorrow we're going on a family picnic and I wanted to make some flatbreads and I thought well the obvious one is the Paul Hollywood baking book so I, I had a look in there 
But wouldn't it be great to know in which of my cookery books each recipe is? I want to make pasta next week. I borrowed a pasta machine from our neighbor. I have finally got time to think about making my own <laughs> pasta. And I have no idea of all my millions of cookery books, which is going to be the one that has the pasta recipe that I want. So I love that. And I think you're doing a lot of online content as well, aren't you, at the magazine? And that must be really hitting home with your readership. Is that something that you're seeing is particularly popular? Well, it is. Our uh, website traffic is up 200% at the moment, almost 200%, which is extraordinary. And we've never seen growth like this, which is really exciting. And from an online point of view, you can react so fast. I mean, things that we were talking about earlier in terms of judging the future and for print, online, you don't have to worry about that because as soon as you can see something happening, you can react on social media, you can create collections of recipes that people are looking for online so one example has been cheese scones which were a thousand percent up on this time last year in terms of overview and we think that was because there was this absolute craze for baking wasn't there and everyone seemed to be baking and people were finding it quite difficult to get certain ingredients. So lots of people were baking bread. And of course, scones are a bit bread-like and don't contain yeast. That was a good thing to do. But also, if you're not a baker, they're very quick and easy. I'm just guessing. And of course, VE Day spiked in a way that nobody was expecting. And that sense of community spirit where people were baking simple things and giving them to each other, I think scones are an easy win for that. But in terms of other things, initially what our team did was to offer advice immediately to anybody who couldn't get certain ingredients and wanted advice on what they could swap in and swap out of recipes. I think it's been a learning curve to realise that a lot of people don't have the confidence to swap ingredients in recipes. And I think that's a skill that's so brilliant to develop, especially in savoury recipes. And I think that's been one exciting thing, just seeing questions and being able to answer them immediately on Instagram. Apart from that, we saw a huge rise in people wanting to make sourdough. So we quickly reacted to that and updated our, all our sourdough content online and made a really easy step-by-step guide because I think maybe that's the sort of thing that you do. I think if you're working full-time and or you've got children, making sourdough and nurturing it is actually quite straightforward, but it's something you probably don't think you have time for most of the time so but in a, during this situation at the moment a lot of people have had more time on their hands at home to do things like just feed a sourdough starter with a bit of flour and water which is all it takes so and then there was a banana bread craze I'm really not sure where that came from do either of you have any theories on that one yeah I, I noticed the same actually in terms of spikes on my website uh, for, for certain recipes it's really interesting how people have just really sort of locked into an idea of something to try mm. at a certain time I think- but I don't know where the banana bread thing came from I get the sourdough no. because it's also kind of your presence really that's required rather than the time input quite often yes but that that's a mystery (laughs) I think it's things that people have so you know you've normally got bananas and they do often go on the turn and you want to use them up something that's easy so banana bread is not particularly technically tricky and then it's just the sort of the craze 
people will will see it a few times and suddenly mm. it blossoms you've got the ingredients it's quite easy it's very nice and then people just pick up on it starts to get shared and it builds and it builds and it builds i don't think you can ever predict what the next banana bread could be it's just kind of a random set of factors but it is so interesting it's not the first time it's been mentioned on the podcast either <laughs> my friend bird was talking about what is this banana bread thing last week and I think it does it does make you wonder how these things blossom but there's overall definitely a huge surge in home cooking and recipes and hopefully that's a good thing for the magazine. Yes it's very good and it's exciting actually to think that more people will discover the love of cooking and also the reality is that we are divided into groups at the moment in terms of this pandemic, aren't we? And that there are some people who very sadly are isolated completely at home, which is a, such a challenge. And then there are other people like me who I don't have children. My husband works in the NHS. I've got a very busy job at home, but I'm in silence. Unless I'm talking to my team on Zoom, I'm in silence at home for 10 hours, which is a strange situation to be in but there are people on my team who are doing similar job to me but they they're homeschooling children in fact one member of my team has four children under seven including three-year-old twins and so (laughs) you can imagine the challenge of that when there are two of you trying to work and children under seven can't just get on with things on their own so we're all in different places and some people are looking for really quick easy recipes People who are in a more of a quiet household and have a bit more time are really seeking out challenges. And that was one of the early surprises for us that people were getting in touch and saying, don't make it all quick and easy because at last I've got time to make a complicated pudding like baked Alaska or a really complicated layer cake or something. And so that's another way in which you have to react very fast and make sure you're doing what people are looking for that's interesting i i I think that's a ready meals company and i was talking to them and they've been expecting to see a big spike in people wanting to purchase ready meals and actually they haven't it's scratch cooking that is leading the the way in retail not the ready meals isn't that interesting and hopefully one of those things that will stick these changes some will stay some will go And I think once people learn these skills and get the joy of cooking and can make these things successfully, then those things will stick with people, hopefully. I heard yesterday that Marks and Spencers, who are known primarily for things that are, well, either very good quality ready meals or very good quality ingredients that you can use to make simple dishes, they've just launched a box to deliver to people's homes so they're doing vegetable boxes fruit boxes and things with a mix of ingredients which is interesting because that is really about scratch cooking it's not I mean they are also doing ready meals obviously but they're very much putting an emphasis on the um, box schemes with the raw ingredients and I think that is a reflection of what you were saying Julie that's People are seeking out the ingredients and not wanting everything to be laid on for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think one thing that I think is so important to emphasize as well, because so many people are looking at cooking for the first time at the moment as well. What's really important is if you are not confident is to actually find a recipe from a trusted source. And I think that's one thing that Delicious does so well. But 
you would not believe well, I, I, you must you will know this as well but the number of people who will go into a cooking project and find a random recipe online or social media and it isn't actually tested and people will get a failure and it's really disappointing and it can off, um, sort of derail someone looking to start cooking. So a trusted source is just so important if, you're, if you don't have the confidence and experience. And I think yeah. the way we used to learn to cook was down through generations of families and the magazine sort of takes that place now, doesn't it? Because those generations living together and learning to cook together, that doesn't necessarily happen. So you need a, if you can't trust your granny to teach you to cook, then you do need a trusted source. Is that something that you're finding your your readership is commenting on? Yes, in a sense, that's not new because I think recipes, Delicious has always been known for its trusted recipes and the fact that they really do work. And somebody tweeted about that just yesterday, which was wonderful to see. But I would say it's long been a bugbear of mine that, that there are recipes at large that aren't tested properly. And sometimes in books, some recipes aren't tested. And it frustrates me because if somebody doesn't have this cooking skills, if they haven't learned them at school or learned them from their mother or father or grandmother, then they tend to come into cooking with a lack of confidence. So if you then seek out a recipe for the first time and think, oh, I might try that, give it a go, and it doesn't work, what's likely to happen is not that you blame the recipe, you're likely to blame yourself and think that it's because you can't cook and therefore you sling the book aside or or whatever or sort of reject that website that you were using and think right that's it I'm useless I can't cook well that's so frustrating to me because I feel the most exciting thing is when you try a recipe for the first time and it works and it's brilliant and you get that wonderful feeling of feeding other people and them being happy with it and you think this is something I really enjoy it's so rewarding and that's what we want to nurture and I think Something I remember from a couple of years ago, we had a recipe, I think Julie might have heard this story before, but we had a recipe for a pool's lamb shepherd's pie. So it was a shepherd's pie with a slight difference by a young chef. And it was a really lovely recipe and it was slightly different from the usual. And when we put that into the magazine, I had a a letter from somebody saying, please don't put recipes like that into the magazine because it's too easy and I want to have things that challenge me and are a bit different. Which I thought was interesting because I know that experienced cooks do like to have challenges and different things and we always try to give a balance of both in the pages of the magazine. I put the letter on the letters page because I do like to have a sort of few nubbly views on the letters page it's much more interesting and a few days after the the next magazine came out with that letter in it I received a letter from a woman who said that she had never cooked. She had been at university and lived on ready meals and gone to the pub and had takeaways and met her partner, got married and was having a baby and still was living on ready meals. And when she went into one of her appointments for antenatal, there was a copy of Delicious magazine on the side. She picked it up and thought, I want to subscribe to this magazine because it looks as if it would be have good recipes I'd like to cook. And she said, I've subscribed ever since. And 
it taught me to cook and feed my family well and healthily. And had you not had recipes like the shepherd's pie and had only had complicated recipes, I would have put the magazine back down and never subscribed. And that was a real lesson to me because I, I thought, what are we doing this for as a magazine? We have to, as a brand, be fulfilling every need. And part of that crucially has to be teaching people to cook who can't and also enhancing the skills of people who have some knowledge. It's a journey. And I would say, for me personally, anyway, for most cooks, there's a rare week when you don't learn something new about food, would you say? Absolutely. Totally. I've, I've learned a lot, particularly in lockdown. I've learned to make pastry from Charlotte's um, Instagram videos. Oh, yeah, short crust. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And I make cake all the time. I learned yesterday to make chocolate cookies from Sabrina Geyer, who had learned it from somebody, yes. you know, got a recipe from somebody else. And I think there's a lot of that. We're all passing things around at the moment. And I think what you're saying is the magazine can be particularly useful in terms of, you know, covering that spread of abilities, but also able to answer questions and help people and that sort of interactiveness, which a traditional magazine wouldn't have been able to do previously. And now is so incredibly helpful for people. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very, very, very busy lady. Very quickly before we let you go, could you tell us at some point when we see some, some normality, whatever that looks like, what you are missing and as in what are you looking forward to when this is over well the top of the list i'm sure most people say this but top of the list has to be seeing some close friends and sharing food and wine and hugs together because i just miss those things so much the cooking for other people people cooking for you sitting around a table laughing and eating and chatting. It's just one of life's best experiences and I can't wait for that. Beyond that, I'm really looking forward to going to a restaurant again, which is such a treat and I I hope for the sake of our restaurant industry that restaurants can reopen soon. And as soon as I'm allowed to, I'm going to be hot-footing it down to Cornwall, which is my favourite part of the country where my family are from, and sitting on a beach and just relishing a view that's other than South East London Garden, which I'm looking at at the moment. Not that that's unpleasant, (laughs) but it's just, I love the thought of being able to go away and be somewhere other than home much as I love my home I think absolutely I can certainly resonate with that and I'm sure Charlotte can as well give us a wave as you pass Charlotte and I through Dorset (laughs) yeah (laughs) I will do just me to say thank you so much the one thing that always stands out for me on my delightful Instagram feed of lovely food is the delicious magazine recipes literally pop out of the feed because they are they just look so delicious they are so tempting you know they work they're always good but there's something about whatever it is that is the magical mix of ingredients from the magazine that makes the delicious stuff just look irresistible you've said it all for me there that's a wonderful recommendation thank you and it's good to know that mix of trying to create food that's you want to eat off the page or Instagram screen, but also looks as if you can do it. That is the combination that we try to achieve. And it's wonderful to know that it does jump out at you in that way. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for your time and good luck with your, your busy job and predicting the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was so interesting and what a different perspective on the world of food. And I'm delighted to say that one lucky winner will be able to win a subscription to Delicious Magazine in our competition this week. What a wonderful prize. Look out for more information on our social media on that one. Absolutely. And next, we speak to the wonderful Emily Leary. Emily Leary is a food, lifestyle and parenting writer, often known as a mummy too. Emily started her blog, A Mummy Too, back in 2011. It grew so rapidly, two years later, she left her career in digital marketing to write full-time. Since then, she's firmly established herself as a respected voice on family life and food. Emily writes for major newspapers and magazines and broadcasts on the TV about food and family life. Emily Leary, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Hello, it's lovely to hear some voices that aren't from inside my house. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, what a crazy time. For listeners who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about your family and how many children you have, their ages, and maybe what inspired you to start the blog? Yeah, absolutely. So we live in Nottingham. I'm married and we've got a 12-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. I can't believe they're that grown up. I'm sure they're just babies. <laughs> and I've always loved food, but they kind of came with their own challenges when it came to food. So my son is on the autism spectrum and my daughter has a sort of undiagnosed throat respiratory condition, which means we're actually shielding at the moment. But when she's poorly, it can mean that she's not so great with new food she kind of wants to stick to the easy soft beige foods that you do when you're poorly so I've always been passionate about food but finding a way to make sure they stayed passionate about food and new tastes was kind of why the blog started up because I was cooking with well first my son I was pregnant with my daughter and then cooking with my daughter as well when she came along and we just thought we'll document it and we'll put it on the internet and nobody will read it apart from family but that doesn't matter and it took off almost immediately I think I was really lucky in that it was early days, 2011, none of us knew what we were doing. And I also fell really quickly into a community of really welcoming and supportive parent bloggers in particular, so not so much the food side. And they were excited about what I was doing and I was excited about what they were doing. So there was a lot of sharing and co-support going on, which is harder to find now simply by dint of the fact there are thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of blogs everywhere. And so it took off really quickly and as soon as I started doing it regularly, it was all I wanted to do. So I had yeah, digital marketing. So I was quite senior in my job. I've been doing it for about 12 years. And I was literally, if I got a break, I would go to the loo's and I would blog on my phone in the loo for sort of 15 minutes and then come back. That would be my break because I just wanted to write about food and family. So as soon as it was making me enough money to not completely terrify my mum and mum-in-law, then <laughs> I went to do it full time. Yeah, sort of what we did nine years later still doing it, written a book, I've been on various incredible trips and worked with incredible people. And so, yeah, I'm very glad that I fell into it like I did. And you've got over 30,000 followers, Emily. That's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, it's uh, across all platforms. It adds up to about 300,000. And with everything that's going on with the pandemic, traffic has just been crazy. So I've already had about half a million people on the site this month which is a lot for me. I mean, it's really gone crazy. People really want to cook. And that's brilliant because, you know, there's not much else to do. Wow. Emily, we've seen so much change in our lives over the mm. last few weeks, all of us. And 
it has been an especially challenging time for parents. What are you hearing are the challenges and also benefits perhaps of lockdown for parents at the moment? Yeah, I think it's been a real roller coaster. My husband and I both work from home. So we both work full time, but we're at home. So in some ways, initially, it was just kind of like Easter or summer where we were trying to juggle having the kids at home and working. And I think a lot of people have had to bring their office work home. So I think that's been really hard. But there's that experience of having the kids there all the time and feeling that you need to educate them, but also being aware that you know, we're not teachers, most of us, and we can't play that dual role very easily because, you know, the kids aren't as polite to us as they might be to their teachers at school. (laughs) So you've got to kind of find what works. And I know, you know, parents have been trying really hard to kind of, you know, go onto all these maths platforms and English platforms, and that's great. And kids will engage in that sort of thing, in my experience, but they also need time with their parents and guardians that feels just rewarding and bonding and doesn't feel like work. So, I think cooking has been really fundamental to that craft for some people getting out into the garden, you know, but kids they're at home and they're not really ever going to accept that we expect them to sit down for kind of six or seven hours like they would at school. So I think a lot of us parents kind of went in thinking, right, it's going to be just like school. We'll start at 9am. And now we're all kind of realizing that's, that's not how it's going to go. Yeah, I think that sounds, yeah. Uh, with that, <laughs> your children home all the time. <laughs> I'm not a parent. <laughs> so. I am. I'm here with <laughs> <laughs> so with your children at home all the time, Emily, what are you cooking at the moment? And what are you hearing from parents cooking from, for their children at home now, possibly more than ever? So I think one of the big experiences that we've all learned is that you can't really go out shopping every day. So a lot of us would go shopping for bits and pieces on the school run. So our school run goes right past a huge supermarket. So, you know, if we decided we were having fajitas, I would just say to my husband, you know, grab some tortillas, I'm going to make fajitas. But now we can't do that. So, you know, meal planning has become a serious thing. And we've gone back kind of as, as a country, probably all over the world, to weekly big shops where you have to try and think about what you're going to use and you also become a lot more conscious about food waste because you know that those peppers you bought are the only ones you're getting this week so if you don't use them you know that's waste that you can't really afford particularly if we're on furlough and so forth so we've been a lot more organized and I've also just had to involve the kids a lot more and so that is a big thing there's no way that you can keep sticking the kids in front of the screen for three meals a day while you go and prepare things So I've got them involved. So we do, for example, waffle Monday. So the kids help make the batter. And then I'm like a little, it's like a little conveyor belt of us all doing various actions of producing the waffles and putting stuff on them. Um, And we all get involved and we kind of take, we take Monday morning a bit more slow because no one likes Monday morning. So that kind of breaks it up a little bit. But the kids are getting really good at cooking. So we can only leave the house, we can't leave the house at all now because our youngest is shielding. So we have to shield with her. So we can't really buy bread because bread doesn't keep for a week, not very nicely. So my son now makes bread every other day. Wow, Um, that's five-year-old. That's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. for life. And then because we're doing so much cooking, this is why we started broadcasting it live every single weekday, which was, in retrospect, an absolutely ridiculous commitment. But we decided because we were cooking every day, we would cook live 
with everybody at home. So we put that up on Facebook at 11 every day and we cook something fun. So it might be cookies, it might be savoury muffins, just something easy and with re- realistic ingredients that you've probably got at home, hopefully, although flour is a bit like gold. And then we make it together and we go really slowly and my eight-year-old does most of the actions, all of the weighing, so that it's at a speed that kids can do at home. And I'm getting a lot of feedback that it just makes this constant conveyor belt of cooking a little bit easier if you can cook with the kids because then it kind of ticks off the educational box, it ticks off the special time together box and it gets you fed. Yeah, it's interesting how many educational benefits you can sort of weave into a simple activity like cooking, isn't it? Following a recipe. There's science, there's English. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, there's, there's that sort of sense of confidence and independence. So my daughter puts things in the oven now and I, I open the oven and pull out the, the metal tray and then she puts the tray in the oven and pushes it closed and I push the tray the rest of the way in and close the door. So we're working together and she's not quite ready to fully handle the oven by herself, but she's getting increasing independence around doing it. So that kind of thing is great for her confidence. And it seems to be really important to both kids that they come out of this feeling like they've achieved something because I think that they feel a little bit like they're on pause and that they're missing out. So, you know, my son's getting amazing at bread and he's trying to learn to code in Python, which is beyond me. You know, and my daughter's doing all of this baking and she's learning how to kind of teach to an audience that are, of course, you know, in their own homes all over the country. She's learning how to explain things. She's giving her own little tips now, like how to tickle the butter into the flour when you're making pastry. So all of this kind of expression and stuff is all really good for them. So I'm a big fan of cooking with kids. I think it's so interesting because from what I've been hearing from so many parents is that what their children might be learning now are skills that go beyond the classroom and much more sort of deeper life skills. I don't know if you and Jules would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, not many people know this, but I actually left school at 12. So, um, yeah, so secondary school did not agree with me and I did not agree with secondary school. So so my mum, I'm very much a nerd. So after the first year, so year seven, I made a big folder of all of the reasons I could study independently and I didn't need school and I presented it to her at the end of the summer holidays with various topics in it and recipes and maths projects and I eventually broke her will and she let me be educated at home and I was very much unschooled so I taught myself a lot and I, I, had a, I spent a lot of time trying to do my sister's books because she's six years older and I wanted to show off so I'd be doing her kind of A-level work just to kind of say that I could even though I couldn't I had no idea what was going on and there was a lot of unschooling, you know, just hanging out with my mum and helping her go shopping. And we were very short on funds. So there was a lot of calculating budgets and planning meals and stuff. And I eventually went to college and I did really well in my exams. So while I definitely want my kids to go back to school, that would be lovely when all this is over. I kind of know that even if we don't get much done, they'll be fine. I think that's really interesting. And Catelyn Moran, I've been reading, is, is saying the same thing. She was homeschooled or, or unschooled. And it's so interesting that when you break from the tradition that is so, you know, this must happen and everybody has to go to school and then suddenly nobody or very few people are going to school and it's all different, everybody will be okay. And like you say, it's so interesting to see what the kids are learning and, and teaching themselves and the skills you would never have thought of that are coming out of this. So my son is not loving schoolwork. And like you say, you know, having to sit down with us and primarily my husband and do school every day for a compressed period of time. 
once that's done, he's off, he's climbing trees, he's out on his bike, not touching anyone or going near anyone, but he's off exploring. And he's making a movie. He's massively into movie making. And that whole creative side is coming out. And again, through cooking, they're cooking. So my 15-year-old daughter made dinner last night. My son will be making it tonight. It's amazing. They, would, they wouldn't have had the time. We were too busy rushing around everywhere. They wouldn't have had the reason to do it. Because now they've got nothing else to do. So it just is a whole new way of looking at things. And them knowing that they're okay and us knowing that they're okay. And they will go on to be a successful or, or content or whatever their life holds for them, regardless of whether they sit in a classroom all day. And this little period is, is I think, shedding a lot of light on new ways of doing things. If your kids are, are off you know, these new skills and cooking and demonstrating, that's amazing. What an opportunity for them. Do they realise, do you think? I think there's a natural expectation from children that parents, and in particular mum, if there's a mum on the scene, it has the job of making you happy and making you safe and keeping you fed. And if they're unhappy, then they kind of look at you like, why am I sad? Fix it. So <laughs> I think that this is a very scary time. And in some ways you just yeah have to follow whatever path they're taking that finds them happiness right now and keeps them busy. And if they love keeping folders of work and you know doing their handwriting or practicing their instrument to get the next grade then great but if they really need to just build a den in the garden and um, dig up worms then let them do that because ultimately this is scarier than any of us had to live through in our childhoods and we just have to keep them safe and cooking is a form of safety isn't it you know you're going to be fed you know that you know you're being looked after and you're creating something and it's that nice comforting thing but actually with their input i think it's something really special do you think their friends you know are they particularly lucky your kids because of who you are and what you do or are you hearing from other parents your kids friends people who talk to you on the blog is it happening across the land it is happening across the land i'm getting so many photos of bakes and what's really lovely is we ask people at the end of every bake so when you finish post a picture on the wall and I say you can post a picture with your bake or you can just post a bake on its own um but for the most part people post their beautiful children from absolutely tiny weeny little babies sitting on worktops up to older really capable children with their bakes uh, with huge smiles on their faces and we've seen whole spreads of the pizzas that we taught everybody how to make kind of the, so the eight-year-old had made lunch for the family and just so many proud faces and we do see a lot of the same names kind of because people ask for a shout out at the start of the show and we see the same names popping up over and over again which is just gorgeous because you know they're really engaged and they'll say you know see you tomorrow at the end so that's really really nice and just the traffic, the increase in traffic, it's, it's up anywhere between kind of two and 400% on any given day, which just goes to show we're all stuck at home. We're doing a lot more cooking. The kids are at home too, so they're getting involved. It wow. sounds like, you know, the Joe Wicks PE lessons. It sounds like you're the uh, home economics or whatever they call it these days. What is it? Food tech. You're the Joe Wicks <laughs> yeah. food tech. If people want to find these classes then, how do they find them, Emily? Is it just following you on social media? Yeah, if you search for my name, I usually come up first, hopefully, unless another Emily Leary overtakes me at any point. So <laughs> you should find me. And then they're on Facebook. So facebook.com forward slash a mummy two. And it's 11am UK time every weekday. 
we're now trying to announce on the Friday night or Saturday morning everything that we're going to bake the following week with ingredients amounts so that people, if they are going out shopping, can think about grabbing a couple of those extra things. Fantastic. So, Emily, your book... Get your kids to eat anything (laughs) has been a huge success. What advice would you give for parents at the moment who might be struggling to get their children to eat a variety of foods? I think right now, as long as they're eating and they're safe, you're fine. As long as they're eating, it's very unlikely that any child is going to become significantly malnourished during this lockdown unless there were already problems or you're you're facing extreme poverty, which is a whole different kettle of fish. But if you've just got kids that mostly want to eat, you know, chips and chicken every night, it won't do them that much harm. Try to get some veg on the plate, but it's really not something worth stressing about on top of everything else that you're worrying about. And actually, the reason that I called my kid, my book Get Your Kids to Eat Anything and not you know, fight fussy eating or something more aggressive is because the book is really for everyone who has realised that they're cooking the same four or five meals. And sometimes they're cooking two or three or four variations every night to please the particular tastes of everybody at the table. And I was getting a lot of emails about that. So, you know, my daughter won't have it with peas in and my son won't have it if we put gravy in the sauce. You know, they're all kind of splitting up. There's a hundred different meals being made every week. So the book is for everybody who just wants to expand how their family think about food. And big part of that is to get kids excited about food and variety so a really great opportunity to open up your family's experiences and understanding of food without putting pressure on them to have a better diet in inverted commas is to cook together and maybe when you're sitting in the supermarket queue online or standing in the supermarket queue and you get in you don't see your usual vegetables grab something you wouldn't normally buy and have a go at putting that into a meal that's already more familiar and just be a little bit more brave a little bit more experimental with food but please don't put any pressure on yourself especially right now that's amazing advice emily i'm going to ask you as an interested mummy any tips on what to cook with families what's good to cook with children what are you eating at the moment we try to put veg on every plate so you can always give kids jobs so even if you're making a meal that's mainly chopping so, you know, like with, um, I don't know, vegetable bolognese, you spend a lot of time just chopping up all the veggies. There are always jobs the kids can do. So whether it's taking a clean sponge and you know scrubbing the carrots or a job that I like to give to my youngest is I will cut the peppers into slices and then she takes her clean craft scissors and she chops them into, um, so she essentially finishes the chopping with her scissors, which takes ages and means I can get on with everything else. She's happy. <laughs> so it's things like that are really great. So what kind of dishes do your family like? What are you making? We like, well, we like everything. We are getting braver and braver with spice. So my husband and I are absolute fiends when it comes to spice. We like quite spicy food. So that we're building up the kids' tolerance, which is the way to do it. So the tiniest spice of chilli that's really more flavour than heat and the tiniest pinch and then building it up over time. So we are having, and we have been doing for a while, different curries at least once a week so that they're a different style. And that's actually another technique from the book. So even if you're trying to introduce something like curry, don't have the same curry every week. Have kind of Thai style one week and Sri Lankan style another week and really mix it up. And that's often just the case of changing 
a little bit of the method but it's often about the combination of spices whether you're using coconut milk or not and so on so we're doing a lot of curry making and loads of baking so there are so many lessons to be learned in baking about the science of baking so we do a lot of that together and where possible we use that for our dinner so for example we make savory muffins you know they're amazing with soup so then any veg that's still in the fridge towards the end of the week cooking that up as a soup having it with our savory muffins amazing Brilliant. Love it. And actually what you're saying is sort of, and I hear you about not putting too much pressure on and it's a difficult enough time, but if you can, and if you're open to trying new things and keeping the variety going, because what kids will do in my experience, given half a chance is shrink the options and I'll only eat that. Yeah. What you're doing is is sort of keeping a theme, but within that, lots of variety and, and keep mixing it up and I think that's great and it put, I'm not a, a dietitian but I think it probably plays into the whole variety then feeds the gut bacteria which then is good for the immune system so there is a biological reason for doing this as well as a, a culinary exploration so it's all good and giving the kids food that they like to eat that has some good things in it has got to be a win. Yeah and, and it's very important I think as well a lot of us at some point in our lives will be in some level of financial hardship and if you know what to do with basic vegetables and you know how to kind of rock a spice cabinet then there's so much that you can do with very little money you know you can make seven different pasta dishes that are mostly pasta because you buy the value stuff in the supermarket and a few extra whatever's on sale and make it taste like a different meal every night and that's what I grew up doing when my mum was working night shifts, I was there kind of trying to make the same meal taste different with my siblings. So, you know, if you learn how to cook young, then you're sorted. And when you go off to, I don't know, work or university and you're trying to stretch those pennies, you'll still be able to feed yourself in a way that's exciting and nutritious. And that's really important. Yeah, know? that's a really good point, actually, to be able to do that and do it well and on a budget. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. So what has your day-to-day life been like in terms of the changes that we're living through so obviously your, your children I think did go to school before this and now they don't and, and I know what that feels like how is that impacting you what did you used to do and what are you how does it look now I am very much a fan of no routine but that is not possible anymore. <laughs> so the kids would go off to school my husband would usually take our youngest the eldest would walk himself to school so by nine o'clock I'd be at my desk or in the kitchen and I'd be able to carry on developing right through till three or six, depending on which after school clubs they had. And my husband would be at his desk. He's a designer, so he'd be working away. And that's it. And we kind of work till three or six, depending on the day. The kids would come home. We'd put away our work-ish, because you know what people who work from home are like. And that would be that. So now we try to do Joe Wicks in the morning. Although I have to confess, I have not been in the mood the last couple of days. <laughs> It's all too cheerful for me. And then we try and sit down and do some work, sometimes all at the kitchen table. Sometimes we'll kind of split off or take a child each. And then we do our bake along at 11, have some lunch after that, which often involves whatever we've just baked. And then the afternoon, we try and get some more work done. And then by about three o'clock, we just kind of give up. So we release the kids into the wild and they might play Minecraft for a couple of hours or they might go into the garden if the weather's good. So that's the rough routine and then dinner and then we try and do a movie or something together. It's not always quite that strict. So sometimes you can tell within 10 minutes, there is no way that the kids are going to pay attention to this algebra or fractions. They are not engaged. (laughs) And so 
you kind of have to give in without letting them know that you've given in because you don't want them to know if they play up. So you're kind of like, that's enough today. There's something else I need you to do rather than, okay, fine. You don't have to do any practice. <laughs> so there's a little bit of kind of gameplay and mind games going on. But that, that's, that's the rough routine. How about you? Yeah, so my 15-year-old is sort of self-managing and my 12-year-old is having much more one-to-one input. My husband was an osteopath but can no longer do that. So bless him, he is sitting at home and we got an email from school today saying, how's it going? And I wrote back and said, you know, he's, do- he's doing really well, my husband and my son. Um, but, you know, the bits where it's taught, input, that's hard. He's not a teacher. We're not teachers. That's a whole different level. If it's just sit down, this is what the school says you need to do and you do it. But if you're trying to teach, that, gosh, it is challenging. It is, and there are some really weird, kind of so ingrained concepts that you don't know how to express them in a meaningful way. So, for example, I saw somebody on Twitter say the only way they could think to explain what a half was in fraction terms to their child was just keep saying, you know, like half of something because they just they had no other no other word for it, like half. And I think we haven't been quite there, but there have been situations where. I'm pretty good at mental maths and I'll look at my daughter's fractions homework and I'll think, well, I know how I do that, but there's no way that that is the message because that's ridiculous. You can't have 0.3 over 7. That's just not going to be the method. <laughs> but that's how my mind works. So and we spend quite a lot of time with her teaching me and then me helping her with the rest. Ah, there's a lot of psychology going on in your home. <laughs> very clever, very impressive and a lot of creativity as well in the cooking, which is just brilliant and your kids are very lucky to have you giving them all that input it's not easy and it's quite tiring so it's well done and how long will you have to do it for that's what we don't know when will it end at some point life will have some sort of more normality what are the things that you're looking to emily when this is over i have 84 recipes in draft where i I've written the recipes and I've tested them, but I haven't been able to photograph them or write them up properly because they're kids' home or there have been various things happening over the last year. So once the kids go back to school, my sight is going to be ridiculous. There's going to be a new recipe every 10 seconds as I actually get it all done. <laughs> so I'm excited about being able to do some work. Desperately want to take the kids away somewhere. I think a lot of us are dreaming of holidays. And I think I did hear somebody on Radio 4 actually say that, yes, she was a journalist for um, Telegraph Travel. And she said that the travel desk is as busy as it's ever been. So there's so much interest in travel and so many people who want to know when they might be able to travel and where they might be able to go and, you know, how restrictions might kind of soften across Europe first and so forth. And I think we're all just dreaming of a holiday and going out of the hotel in the morning and not coming back until midnight every day because we don't stay indoors. So definitely (laughs) that. feel your passion about that one. And I understand (laughs) entirely. And I think seeing my mum, because it's killing me not seeing my mum, so I will be, I'm pretty much going to move her to Nottingham the second we come out of lockdown, I think. (laughs) How about you guys? Well, we're asking everyone this same question, and I think there's a a number of themes coming out which involve hugging, eating in restaurants, and travelling. So I'm very along those lines. I think, Charlotte, you're the same. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Thank you so much, Emily. That has been absolutely brilliant. Really an interesting insight into your life. <laughs> so thank you very much. We will put all the links on our website and link to you on social media. And it just leaves us to say thanks for your time and stay safe.
And now let's meet our final guest of the week, Angela Clutton. Angela Clutton is a cookery writer, broadcaster and food historian. Angela's debut book, The Vinegar Cupboard, was published in March 2019 and has won a host of awards, including the Jane Grigson Award, Fortmer Mason Food and Drink Award, and she is shortlisted for two Guild of Food Writers Awards. Angela runs a range of food events and talks for Borough Market in London. She is the 2020 guest director of the British Library's Food Season Talks and can often be seen on Channel 5's Inside series on television. Angela Clatton, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us, Angela. I always think you guys do the most amazing introductions to your guests. <laughs> I think it's the biggest bonus about being on your podcast. You get this extraordinary bigging up in Charlotte's gorgeous, you know, vaulting tones. Well, you're very kind. It's always a joy to write them and actually speak to all our wonderful guests. And Angela, thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. Now, your book, The Vinegar Cupboard, has been extraordinarily well received especially so for a first book. And I think it's fair to say that vinegar is such an overlooked ingredient for lots of people. What do we all need to know about vinegar? I think we all need to know just how versatile it can be and the degree to which acidity is really, really important in balancing food, which I know you you will know so well. And I think the more people get into cooking, the more you do realise that actually if something needs a little bit of tweak of something, it's often acidity. Like salt is what we all sort of tend to reach for. And indeed, absolutely amazing to kind of bring flavours together. Acidity is the one which is often overlooked. And vinegar, I think, is even more overlooked within that. People tend to go for a squeeze of lemon. Whereas the thing about vinegars is you can have so many different layers of acidity some are stronger than others. You can get different flavour notes coming through. Some of them are a little bit of sweetness. Some of them have like a malt vinegar, one we all know from fish and chips, has a lovely kind of, you know, woody kind of element to it. The balsamic vinegar, the other one that we all know. So you have so many more options of what you do. And then once you get your head around that, then it's just sort of getting familiar with using them in so many different kinds of cooking. So I am not a professional cook chef I'm not professionally trained but I was making French onion soup this week which is one of our favorites and I went to a different recipe book it was a French recipe book and she adds in a little splash of sherry vinegar at the end which I haven't seen before in a recipe and oh my word it was out of this world and I'm sure I would imagine it yeah, completely. It does. So I, it's funny you say that. I have a recipe in the book for onion soup. And I think, if memory serves, but it really might not, I think I put sherry vinegar in at the beginning when you're cooking down the onions. And it really brings out sweetness. It really adds in a layer of depth. And then I think I finished it with the vinegar as well as little kind of garnishing lift. But for those kinds of dishes, vinegar really, really does. It just gives... Oh, it just gives dishes so much welly, really. And I think that's the thing which has been overlooked a lot. So I bet your soup was really lovely with that sherry vinegar. Sherry vinegar is my desert island vinegar. If I could only have one, if something you know, really bad happened in my kitchen, I couldn't have one vinegar. <laughs> sherry vinegar would be, would be it. Oh, it is amazing. And there are so many different sherry vinegars as well, actually, aren't they? I mean, I was just having a look over here. I've got, I don't know what your recommendations are. I've got the, the sort of like basic Spanish sherry vinegar from the supermarket. 
And then I've got some of these amazing Pedro Jimenez vinegars as well. I mean, there are so many. What people don't realize is the breadth and range of vinegars in all countries across the world. And well, I think that's really it, Charlotte. I think you've hit on something there. That when I was writing the book, I think I, even when I started, I didn't really expect it to be such a kind of global thing and actually at the beginning of the book we have this map of showing where vinegar is all around the world and it's kind of everywhere because it's a natural function really of you know sugar-rich produce and alcohol you know, vinegar tends to just kind of appear and has them you know, over the years and so it is kind of everywhere but I think what you're hitting on Charlotte is really interesting that the vinegars around the world say something about where they're from they're not the same everywhere sherry vinegar tells you something about Andalusia rice vinegar tells you something you know about Japan or China or the individual region of Japan and China if you're lucky enough to get something which is more regional so it's not a generic vinegar is vinegar and vinegar is everywhere there is identity that connects to where the vinegar comes from although I should say I've got a nasty feeling I'm making it sound like people have to have 50 vinegars which is (laughs) not the point you can if you fall down the vinegar rabbit hole like I did and Charlotte got a nasty feeling you have as well with the amount of It's very tempting to fall down the vinegar rabbit hole, but you don't have to. Just have a couple of things and get into the habit of using them you know, and see how it goes. Now, that's really interesting. So actually, Jules and I were just talking about seasoning and how to make your food really balanced. And I think that's probably one of the things people find most difficult about cooking actually and that's one of the questions I get most in cookery classes people say well can you taste it is it right I don't know and I think good seasoning is all about getting you know the sort of the saltiness the sweetness if applicable and the acid absolutely right now obviously you know that acid as you said is often the kind of missing part when you're building flavor in a dish and I think nine times out of ten that little kick of acid is what is needed to bring things together. So in terms of recommendations, what do you have for uh, vinegars to have around? What would you recommend? I mean, I always think the basics are, first of all, a good quality vinegar, because I think something decent is better than having something basic if you can avoid it. Maybe a bit of white wine, red wine, cider, balsamic. They'd be vinegars people would be thinking about having in. What would you recommend? I think that I think that's a very good start, Charlotte. I think yeah, I think that's it really. I'd probably go for a sherry vinegar rather than a balsamic. The wheels can come off very quickly when you're buying balsamic vinegar. And unless you are taking the time to really kind of look into what you're buying, you can end up with something which isn't, isn't really what you hoped for. Whereas with sherry vinegar, you're more certain to get something which is of a really gorgeous kind of rounded quality. And there's a sweetness and a woodiness that comes with some of the sherry vinegars that is this is what you're seeking in a balsamic. So I'd probably definitely go for a sherry. I would go for a white wine vinegar, ideally something slightly sweet, like a muscatel. Nice. Um, you know, there's some really lovely ones to get the edge of sweetness through and a basic cider vinegar. And I would consider myself pretty chipper. When I go on holiday, this is a very sad story. When I go on holiday, which God knows none of us can do for a while, but next time I go on holiday, <laughs> I will be packing my little miniatures of vinegars to take with because I can't bear going to the local supermarket and there being either no vinegar or terrible vinegar. And I so do I have take to. <laughs> okay, brilliant. So I take a little sherry vinegar, I take a little muscatel white wine vinegar, and I take a little cider vinegar and I consider myself totally taken care of. 
you so need that especially you know when you're traveling i find a lot of countries i will end up going to particularly around the mediterranean you can get a really good olive oil really really easily but it's the vinegar you know it's just if you're going to you know a village supermarket or something you can get the oil but the vinegars tend to be yeah. <laughs> sort of... there's a lovely find like a look you can get you know we've been like lovely markets we, we go to france quite a lot kind of you know, down almost where france becomes spain and there we've hit it very lucky and had some lovely honey vinegar which i really you know, really love using and some raspberry vinegar and those kind of things so you can eat it lucky but i think because it is so important to cook with i think that you know having a, a good basic stash I think is really really useful and then when you find things around you can layer it you know layer it up at home you know, i really much as i bang on about vinegar i really don't expect everyone to have a vinegar cupboard i mean i literally do i mean the title of the book came from the fact i absolutely do have a cupboard full of just vinegar but obviously i know people aren't going to do that but just you know have a few and then you can see what else you find after that so when you're on holiday if you find a particular winner do you then try and stock up and bring home as much as you can yeah. you do sort of then think oh okay I, or i wonder if i can get that yeah there are some really good suppliers in the uk of vinegars and, and andy harris runs a company called vinegar shed and he does an extraordinary job of importing amazing vinegars mainly from europe and they are beautifully made and you know i think vinegar is really one of those things where the time taken in production really comes through in the flavor of what you have so the vinegar shed ones are really good for kind of wine vinegars and fruit vinegars and then the wasabi company they're amazing at bringing over japanese vinegars and it has you know been so hard up until the wasabi company really to get hold of any decent japanese vinegar you know the supermarket ones they, they don't really pass muster to anything that would be recognizable in Japan as being a vinegar and yet you know, the ones that are coming over from the Masaba company are absolutely brilliant. So there are people who are doing you know, really exciting things and understanding that there is a lot to be found around the world in different vinegars and harnessing it and bringing it over for us. That's really interesting and actually what a lot of people don't always appreciate is that whilst there's this extraordinary range of vinegars available from around the world, I mean, I was fascinated reading your book, you know, to learn about things like maple vinegar, sweet potato, it's absolutely extraordinary. But there's a lot going on closer to home as well, isn't there? There's apple cider vinegar. You went to Orkney when you were researching the book as well, didn't you? Not only went to Orkney, I kind of fell in love with Orkney and I think they worried they weren't going to get rid of me. I think it's <laughs> just the most amazing place. I completely fell in love with it. And there's an amazing guy out there called Sam, Sam Britton, who is Orkney Craft Vinegar and he is just making a malt vinegar, which you know, there's a few artisan word I loathe, but you know, apt for this, malt vinegar makers around the UK now. And his malt vinegar is one which has really kind of hit a stride. And he ages it in whiskey barrels, which really is just so nice because you know, the, the woody element which you want in a malt vinegar then is kind of, you know, obviously exacerbated by having this wonderful ageing in whiskey casks. So it's, um, yeah, what he's doing up there is really, and he does some sugar kelp vinegar oh, too. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, re he's really got some very, very interesting things happening. And it's just a guy. I mean, it's just one guy doing it. I mean, he's got, you know, some locals who kind of help him pick stuff. But pretty much, it's, it, when I went to meet him, it was him and his father-in-law working out their garage. Wow. And this is Orkney Craft Vinegar? Orkney Craft Vinegar, yeah. Yeah. But literally from their garage. And beautiful stuff. That's amazing. So thinking about vinegar, I mean, one of the things that it is so great for is just being 
a standby ingredient insofar as it's quite stable, doesn't need refrigeration. And once you've got it, it kind of lasts. So it's a great ingredient to have to hand at the moment, particularly as lots of us are looking at more sort of store cupboard recipes at home. So what are your top recommendations then at the moment? What do you think, what is in your store cupboard and what do you think people should be having in their store cupboard? I think that vinegar, as you say, is really good for cooking at the moment where people are either looking to kind of build up their pantries again or build up their pantries from scratch if they haven't before. And the vinegar can be really, really useful for doing that and building yourself a range of chutneys or pickles. I've, you know, this morning, actually, I just made a, a shrub kind of drinking vinegar. I had too much rhubarb. I overordered on some rhubarb and I knew I wasn't going to really use it. So I've just this morning kind of macerated it in some sugar and some vinegar and some rose petals and some saffron. That's going to sit for five days or so, and then I will strain it, and then I will have you know what will be a lovely rhubarb, rose, and saffron shrub, which I can use as a soft drink cordial. I could add it to some sparkling wine. I also cook with it often, so if I'm making tagine or something. So I think you can start to do things with vinegars, as so say like sh- shrub drinking vinegars, pickles, chutneys, which you then can use in other aspects of your cooking to kind of pep things up. You know, if you have some cucumbers that are being pickled or maybe some little pill onions that are being pickled or anything that's being pickled really, that pickling juice can then be used in your salad dressings and carries with it the flavours of whatever's been pickling in there. I always say to people, never chuck out your pickling juice. Like pickling brine is kind of gold because it's taken on so much. It's given flavour and it's taken on flavour. So I think you know, these are all ways that you can boost up your cooking at the moment and add other elements of flavour because I think I think a lot of us are getting sick of our own cooking. I know I am getting very sick of my own cooking. <laughs> I'm still getting a lot of pleasure out of cooking, but I'm getting sick of it. I think a lot of us are trying to reach out for ways to just add a little injection of something else. And vinegars and the ways that you use vinegars for preserving things can be really handy for that. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think that's definitely always one of my top tips is having that sort of wardrobe of ingredients, if you like, in a pantry, in a cupboard, just having some options that are not as perishable. And these sort of additional flavours can really help elevate everything you cook and also just give you some options because, you know, it's so difficult particularly at the moment to think about different things to be cooking all the day and funnily enough Jules and I were just talking as well about you know the repetition of having to cook every day I mean how are things for you at the moment what are you cooking in lockdown and what are you particularly enjoying at the moment I'm still happy to say I'm still enjoying cooking I think I'm not enjoying eating it so much. I'm sort of a bit bored of eating. <laughs> it's like eating the same kind of palate things. I'm a bit bored of that. But I'm still enjoying cooking, which is nice. Although you know, last night I kind of fancied doing something which was a bit more kind of Malaysian almost. I kind of went off, which isn't really my normal cooking style. So I kind of went a little bit out of my normal comfort zone of cooking to doing something different. But pretty much we eat quite simply. And I think one of the things I found about lockdown is that it has made me back to basics a little bit. You know, I'm enjoying the roast chickens and, you know, some now we're moving into new potato season, just some gorgeous new potatoes with too much butter and lots of salt and some herbs, you know, over the top. So really kind of going for the simple stuff, actually simple stuff to cook and things which feel quite nourishing in the broadest sense of that. 
Yeah. I feel like I was saying to my husband the other day, I feel like we're cooking around the world at the moment. And I think it's a bit of boredom. It's a bit of getting out the recipe books that, you know, have sat on the shelf for a long time and looking through something a bit different. But I do agree with you and making those things that are maybe more traditional, but we forget how delicious they are. And obviously adding a little bit of vinegar <laughs> is a really good tip. So listen, I would love to know, you've talked about travel, we've talked about travel before. Is that something you're looking forward to? What would you say are the sort of top things that you're looking forward to when this is all over, Angela? I am looking forward to travel, but I fear that's something which probably isn't going to be on the horizon all that soon. I think what I'm looking forward to, hopefully much more quickly than that, is being able to say to my husband, should we go out? Should we go out for dinner? That's what I want to do. And I know exactly what I'm going to do. I've got my whole evening planned. But just <laughs> But just that kind of, shall we? Let's go, let's go out. I, I, I'm really, really looking forward to doing that in, in a relatively low level, very natural way. Everybody, I love listening to the podcast and you asked this question. I think everybody so far has said friends and family, hugging, seeing friends and family. And I think that's obviously for all of us, you know, been such a loss and such a wonderful thing to get back to. But also I'm really looking forward to going back to doing food events and connecting with people over food people that you don't know and they come to an event and you connect and share and food does what it does and brings people together and I'm really really looking forward to getting back I mean it's wonderful that we do so much over screens at the moment and how the way we've adapted has just been staggering I think but there's nothing quite like being in a room with people and cooking and sharing and talking so I'm really looking forward to getting back to that I think we can all agree with that list, Angela. And I, for one, am going to get my hands on a copy of The Vinegar Cupboard. Just for our listeners, where can they get hold of this lovely book? At the moment, it's sold out on Amazon. And I guess there are worse problems to have. (laughs) (laughs) So Waterstones have it at the moment, The Hive online. Fortnum Mason are selling, actually, because after it won the award, um, they started selling it. So, But Waterstones and The Hive are probably great places to go. Track it down. Amazing. And you won that Fortnum's Award very, very recently, didn't you? And we should say as well, just in case anyone is interested, you are shortlisted for two Guild of Food Writers Awards and the awards are going to be held virtually on the 16th of June. So everyone is now able to attend or watch and um, we'll be all keeping our fingers crossed for you. So congratulations on the shortlisting of that as well. Thank you. I'm so chuffed. Good luck, Angela. That sounds very exciting. And Charlotte, we should put a link to the virtual awards on our website and we can all be there. Thank you for your time, Angela. Back off to the vinegar cupboard you go. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Love to talk. That was great. And how interesting to hear what people are cooking at home whilst we're all in this strange situation together. Jules, now, have you got any industry news for us this week? Yes, I've got a couple of interesting stories. So I've heard that Pret-a-Manger is set to open a further 204 shops for takeaway and delivery as the UK is slowly easing out of lockdown as we record. Shops will reopen for the first time in towns and cities such as Bath, Bournemouth, Newcastle, Exeter and Liverpool. And also, more than 60% of high street food markets will remain closed despite the easing of lockdown, a new survey has revealed. While some local councils were trying to revive markets by waiving fees or rent for stallholders, a third of local authorities are still charging traders, with many still being charged 
whilst not being allowed to trade. So that must be difficult. So let's go on to our listener questions. And Charlotte, what have we had come across our question desk this week? Well, the first question we had is whether or not you can make ice cream without an ice cream machine. So in this warm weather, I think a lot of people are looking at having a go at making ice cream. Now, ice cream machines are great. What they do is they help to make ice cream quickly and they make it really smooth. So they are really nice to have. What they do mainly is prevent ice crystals from forming as the mixture freezes. And I think this is actually most noticeable in sorbets rather than ice cream. They tend to come with a large bowl that has to go in the freezer overnight pre-freeze before the ice cream is made. So it's the sort of thing you need to get in the habit of thinking about in advance if you're going to do it. And they do take up quite a lot of freezer space. So if you've got one of those sort of domestic freezers with three drawers they're going to take up quite about half of a big drawer potentially they're also quite expensive so don't feel as though they're essential they are useful but not an essential to have so two things i'd say in summary what you can do if you've got one great use it it'll be really good but if you don't have one or they're out of your price range i'd recommend looking at no churn recipes for ice cream you can get some that use uh, whipped egg mousse base and some have condensed milk as well you mix the condensed milk into the mixture and you freeze it if you don't want to do one of those recipes the custard recipes or sorbet recipes do need an ice cream machine to get a smooth finish or else what you've got to do is you've got to mix the mixture every half an hour until it's set frozen so that can be done in an electric blender or with a fork so if you're trying that kind of recipe you do need to do that otherwise you will have a granita effect with ice crystals in the mix interesting i'm thinking of making a gooseberry sorbet this week i think that might work quite well as a sharp sweet sorbet so i shall make sure to stir it constantly so talking of nice fruity delicious things i see a lot of people are making elderflower cordial have we had anybody talking about that charlotte Yes, actually, people have been asking about whether or not you need to add citric acid. Now, of course, everyone's picking the elderflower and making cordial at the moment, and there are shortages with citric acid. You can get away with making elderflower cordial without citric acid. So that is totally possible. However, what citric acid does is it preserves. So you can make it, but you're going to have to drink it really quickly. I'm thinking two, three weeks maximum, you will find that you will end up with the mixture deteriorating or it becomes really highly effervescent and is a bit of an explosion risk. So if you don't have any, you can't get any, just make sure you drink it quickly. It will be fine, but you cannot keep it for very long. Good tips there. Thank you very much. So that was great. Thanks again to all our fabulous guests and lovely listeners. We hope you enjoyed the show and we look forward to talking to you all again next week. So we'd just like to finish by saying thanks for listening, folks. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question about food and drink during the pandemic, drop us an email. We're on hello at pandemic-pantry.co.uk. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Pandemic Pantry Podcast. And if you'd like to enter our weekly competition to win a case of delicious Moorish dips or one of our other great giveaways, just head to our website and look in the competition section. The website address once more is www.pandemic-pantry.co.uk and we'll see you next week.